So, um, before I had the podcast, Cafe Latte, if you looked at um, myself on the internet, um, certain things would pop up. Right? So right now, you, you Google my name, obviously my cat shows up. But back in the day, if you Google my name, chances are what would come up is, uh, is Disney's Frozen. Right? So has, has anyone seen that? You've all seen it, right? Yep. Are you being shy? Please tell me you've seen it. If you've seen it, just go up your head, if you don't mind. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, good. How about this side? Yeah? Okay, good. So, um, yeah, so Frozen came out in 2013, and so just a little background with that. And I remember seeing it on, on a Wednesday, and if you, if you remember all the ads um, leading up to the opening day, they, they, they kind of were misleading. And there's an article in Forbes magazine which talks about this, right? So this was done on purpose. And so what they did, all, all the early teasers, they, they played up um, the, uh, the snowman and the reindeer, right? And the idea was that, okay, like parents would bring their kids to this thing, and like, they're thinking it's going to be like terrible and stupid and stuff. And they go see it, and there's all these amazing adult themes, right? And that was the case with me. So I, I went to see it just because I, I wanted to see it for therapeutic reasons. <laughs> I was like, what is why I was going to see it, right? And I, I went, and I wasn't expecting um, very much to, to happen in terms of like, seeing the profound themes and all And if you've ever seen Frozen, those of you who have, like, it all comes together in the final like, five minutes or something. But usually I can get it like in terms of like, okay, like this is why it struck me deeply in this way versus that way. But um, I, it took a while for me to kind of get it. And I had to see it again. So at the time, I think it was I was on internship. So I, I talked to my, my pastor, and I'm like, look, I saw this amazing, amazing movie, Frozen. Um, I just saw it, like, tonight, like, on Wednesday. Can we, can we see it, like, Thursday? And so, so we both went, and I saw Frozen again the very next day in full. But I didn't do anything with it, because there's, there's a lot to it. Because a lot of times just, uh, I'll see movies, and they would be, like, one or two things which touch on the Christian thing, and then you can kind of spin the thing around it, and you're good to go. But, but Frozen is so rich and so deep, I knew it had to be like, it's this really kind of uh, elaborate treatment. So I didn't do anything with it for like um, a year, actually, so I had it in the back of my mind, and occasionally I'd go out to dinner with friends and whatnot, and I'd talk to them about it. But uh, one crazy friend of mine, he was, he was like, you know, I remember that thing you said about Frozen before, um, can you tell me again, because I want to I wanna use it in a homily. And I thought, man, you're going to screw up. So I, I used it, I put together this thing, and I, I gave it um, for Christmas, I believe, at my second parish. So it's a bit of background. Some of you have heard this before, right? So I really appreciate the uh, creative process that Disney kind of respected in terms of generating the movie Frozen. So back in like 1940, around there, like shortly after like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, there was a whole thing like, what are we going to do for our next big hit? Because right? obviously Snow White was really huge. And so um, Walt Disney wanted to make this anthology film, like, you know, short little stories on one film based on the stories of Hans Christian Andersen. And so Han Christian Anderson did things like Little Mermaid, um, Little Matchstick Girl, Ugly Duckling, and stuff like that, right? And you got to hand it to Disney. I don't know if, they, if, that's, if it's still their, their ethos now, but like, they have this thing where like, um, implicitly, we're trying to discover the truth, we're trying to discover beauty, right? And so um, we're not going to force the issue. So if it doesn't seem right, we're not going to force it. And so basically, um, the reason why, even to this day, there's no anthology film based on the story of Han Christian Anderson is because they couldn't um, kind of crack the nut of the Snow Queen, right? So if you've ever looked at like old fairy tales right, and fables and whatnot, they're pretty dark, right? So yeah, like they're horrible actually. So um, and so like with the Snow Queen, there's a thing where like someone gets glass in their eye or whatever. It's just like it's awful. Um, and so basically, they were trying to think of a way to make the Snow Queen character 
sympathetic. And, and again, they couldn't crack that nut. And so rather than force the issue and make a quick buck, they decided to kind of wait, right? In the meantime, you know, they made short films, Little Matchstick Girl, whatever, and Oxymoron, they became a thing, you know, but then they, they never actually resolved the issue of the Snow Queen. And eventually, they decided, like, okay, the way to resolve it is to make the Snow Queen not this, like, monster on top of a mountain type thing. The way to kind of resolve it is to make it so that the Snow Queen is the sister of the protagonist. So then it becomes a family issue, right? And so you see this in the making of, of, of Frozen, right? So um, Elsa is basically the Snow Queen, and Anna is, is her sister, right? And so the idea, they were very conscious about this, because like, they knew the traditional motif when it came to fairy tales was that there's this tension and, and some guy just comes out of nowhere on this horse and he saves them, right? And they're like, nope, there will be no guy, right? <laughs> it's like this is a family issue and there's like sisters and like it's not like one's good and one's bad. They're just trying to work out this, this particular issue. Right? So that's the whole thing with, with Frozen. So in terms of understanding the, the thing, right? So you've got to know a couple of things about salvation history. So this is a little bit of theology, right? So you go back to the book of Genesis, obviously the first parents, Adam and Eve, right? So basically back in the day, before like original sin, um, the expression is they lived in easy friendship with the Lord and with each other. And it's symbolized by the fact that they were naked, right? So I'm naked before you and before, before God type thing. Right? So um, shared vulnerability, but we don't feel threatened in that. And the reason why is because before original sin, the things are pretty good, right? So there's no suffering, no death, no inclination towards sin no tension in, in relationships or, or the relationship between men and women and that sort of thing, right? But with original sin, like, things obviously change. So it's like, original sin, we're not always sure what the original sin was, but we know it was born out of a deep sense of distrust, right? So you remember the garden and all the trees and stuff, and the only thing you gotta do, like, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But of course, they blow that, right? And they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what this symbolizes is then, okay, we, we somehow, like along the way, stopped trusting that God had our best interests in mind. And so that's symbolized by them being the, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. As a result of which original sin enters into the world, right? And so all of a sudden things change, right? So now there's, there's tension between Adam and Eve. They start blaming each other, right? They, they, they start to clothe themselves in terms of fig leaves and they're afraid of God. And like now they're suffering, there's inclination towards sin, now there's death, you know, whatever, right? And so what this symbolizes is disorder now enters into the world. So tension between me and like other people, tension with me and the Lord, um, tension within myself, conflict even with like, you know, just like the world that I manage. Right? So that's, that's what symbolizes that. Right? Now the Lord, um, when he sees this thing happening to Adam and Eve, um, you know, certainly he calls them out, like you shouldn't have given the fruit, obviously, right? But he doesn't like condemn them, but he clothes them and he says, okay, like one day, you know, there'll be a savior, he'll make all things new in the fullness of time. Right? So that's salvation history. Another thing that's important to know, to kind of understand this thing I'm about to talk about now. So when you look at like the church fathers, like people like Augustine or whatever, when they talked about sin, they talked about sin in terms of um, a separation or an alienation. That's the way they kind of phrased it, right? So, but what's interesting, this is kind of the point. Rather than use like what we're used to in terms of like, you know, images of like fire and like burning hell and whatever, they use these, these, these very kind of like, unique images. So Augustine talks about sin as like being caved in oneself, right? And uh, Dante, the poet Dante, he uses the image of, of um, being trapped in ice or, as we were saying, frozen, right? So when you look at frozen, like whenever you see like snow and ice and frozen and sort of thing, it's, it's actually a metaphor for, for original sin and sin in general. 
And it might seem like I'm making that up, but when you see the film, you kind of play with this, it's pretty cool, right? So, okay, so you think of the red beauty in the film, right? So the two sisters, there's like Anna and Elsa, and they're young and they're carefree and that sort of thing. So easy friendship with each other. So the state of affairs before original sin. And then there's this accident, right? So something happens, and so uh, as a result of that, you know, now Elsa becomes like super afraid, right? To the point at which she, she finds herself like trapped behind locked doors. She, she locks herself in her room and refuses to engage with with uh, Anna, right? She's afraid of like kind of hurting Anna, right? And there's this whole thing where like um, uh, Anna's knocking on the door, right? And it, remember that song? The song is obviously one of those. You want to go somewhere, right? <laughs> so there's this whole thing. And so if you think about it, even just from a biblical standpoint, it's like kind of like Revelation, I think three fourteen or three sixteen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door to me, I will die with him and he with me, right? So, awesome. So she's knocking on the door for like years. Now that changes when it comes to well, it doesn't change, but the circumstances somewhat change when it comes to the coronation day. So they're they're, they're princesses, both of them, Anna and Elsa, and they live in this kingdom called Arendelle. And there comes this a situation where okay, the parents have died, it's a little side note. Um, but there's a situation where basically Elsa, because she's the eldest sister, she'll become like the new queen of Arendelle. So she's kind of age. And you remember that song that's being sung at that time? For the first time in forever. Right? For the first time in forever, right? And so the thing that's interesting about that is that it's sung as a duet, right? And so you compare the two situations, right? So it's the same situation, right? So the coordination, it's meant to be this, this is exciting events. Up to this point, the, the kingdom is enclosed to the public. But now the gates are open and people are coming in on occasion of the coordination. So it's meant to be, again, a really happy occasion. But what happens is the sisters receive it differently. So on the one hand, like, uh, Anna's like, this is amazing. You know, doors are being opened, like, we're finally going to meet people. This is fantastic, right? And Elsa's afraid and terrified because doors are being opened, people are kind of coming in, right? And Bishop Robert Barron talks about this, right? So he says one of the um, downsides of original sin is that it leads us to kind of convey to the fact that people are meant to be feared as opposed to they're meant to be loved. And so he says, as a result, what you find, a lot of like sins related to that particular fear, right? So, um, you know, gossip and, 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 and violence and all those different things, right? So that's, that's, that's what that is meant to kind of symbolize, right? So anyways, um, things kind of come to a head, right? So there's this thing that happens in, in the course of the coordination. And then um, also goes to, she banishes herself to a faraway place, I guess, and she sings a song. Let it go. Okay. Now let it go. Um, it's interesting, right? A lot of people look at that song, the song of freedom and emancipation, that sort of thing. Uh, except it's not, right? And so it's sort of like the Lion King, right? So if you've seen the Lion King, which everyone has, right? Remember that song Hakuna Matata, right? So everyone's like, oh, Hakuna Matata. It's like really catchy and this sort of thing. It's like it's like really amazing, and like we're supposed to live according to. Matana, which means no worries. Uh, Matana is the song of the devil. And you know that because of, like, when you look at the actual plot, right? So like, okay, so what does what a lead symbol to do? To kind of live in the, you know, in the jungle and eat bugs and berries. Whereas what he's supposed to do is not live according to Kunamatana. He's meant to kind of enter the pride land, fight those hyenas, and like live up to his vocation to be the, you know, the son of the king, right? So similar thing with this. So when you look at like Let It Go, um, you know, there's certain lines which is like, oh, like, um, I'm, I'm alone and free and whatever. But if you look at her actual situation, 
<laughs> so she, she changes her clothes, she changes her hair, and she kind of builds this, this castle of ice, and, and she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm alone and free, and she shuts that door. But she's alone in a castle full of ice, you know? So, like, right away, it's like something doesn't seem right. She's not alone and free, she's just, she's just alone, right? Now, this becomes clear, this is not like a made-up thing, right? Because when Anna comes, and they have that whole conversation, it's the reprisal of like that song for the first time in forever, right? And so initially, um, Elsa's like, oh, no, things are fine, just go back home, you'll be, you'll be safe, and whatever. And then uh, Anna's like, I don't think you realize what's happening, right? So Arendelle is completely encased in ice because of this, this thing you've left unresolved. Speaks to the fact that original sin doesn't, doesn't just affect me, it affects my relationships, it affects the world, right? And so basically, we gotta come back and like kind of deal with this thing. Now, um, at this point, it's, it's um, this is where you know that like that letter girl was not meant to be a, a song of emancipation, right? Because um, suddenly Elsa realizes like what's gone wrong, and so she's like, um, you know, I'm such a fool, I can't be free, I can't escape the storm inside of me. Now, again, it's a, it's a duet, right? Just like the first time you hear first, first time in forever, right? So what you see with Elsa is that she's progressively going down this, this spiral of like negativity and despair and whatever. But you look at Anna, and it's not so much what she says, although that's helpful too. It's like the tone of it all, right? And so she's like, um, for the first time in forever, uh, we can work through this thing and we can reverse the storm we've made. But it's like steady and calm, right? So interesting thing about that, it speaks to this notion of spiritual warfare, right? But basically, when you think about how like the Lord speaks to you and how like the voices of the, of the tempter speaks to you, obviously they have a kind of a different tone, right? But it's not how people might expect. So a lot of times people think, okay, like, the voice of the shepherd speaks to me for like half an hour, and he takes a break, and the devil speaks to me. But usually it's like they're talking over each other. They're talking over each other, right? So you need to recognize in the midst of these competing voices, which is the voice of the good shepherd, which is the voice of the devil, right? So one way you can tell is that the voice of the good shepherd even though it might kind of challenge you to recognize a certain area of growth, um, the voice of the Good Shepherd is always convicting, in the sense that here's an area where you need to kind of perhaps change or grow or whatever, right? But I leave with a sense of, of hope, right? So do this thing, make this adjustment in your life, and it might be hard, but it's linked to new life, new freedom, and so you don't have a sense of being down yourself, you have a sense of, like, yeah, this is good for me. And so I'm left with a sense of hope, right? Whereas the devil doesn't leave you with a sense of, of conviction, he leaves you with a sense of, of condemnation, right? So the Lord will always say some variation of like, you know, make this adjustment and your life will be better. The devil will say some variation of like, you suck, right? Um, and it leaves you with a sense of like, I don't have any hope, you know? Because I'm like, no good and all these different things, right? And so you go back to this duet for the first time forever, this reprisal, right? So the whole thing, you go back to honor, right? So. For the first time in forever, you don't have to be afraid. We're going to work through this thing. We're going to reverse the storm you've made. And it's like super, super calm. It's okay. It's okay. Just relax, whatever. And what happens is, in contrast, you look at Elsa. She is freaking out, right? And it really intensifies as the story's going on, right? As the song's going on. But then what happens, it's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, God permits evil for a sake for good, good, right? So do you remember what happens at the end of that song? Everyone's looking to their children. <laughs> you must know the answer. Um, so what happens is like she's like, okay, um, I can't. Right? So up to this point, Anna's like, well, we can do this thing together. Don't be afraid, you know, whatever. And then Elsa's like, I can't. Like I can't do this. It's sort of reminiscent of what you find in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So here's this thing. 
I have a problem, it's totally beyond me, I can't do it, but there's a greater power which, which can and which will, type thing, right? So I can't. At which point, this, this huge blast of ice shoots from her body to, to Anna's body, right? Anyone know what happens to Anna? What does the children get? No? So what happens is um, her hair changes and so it becomes kind of like, you know, pale and white, sort of like Elsa's hair. Uh, her skin becomes pale, not like Elsa's skin, and her temperature plummets, not like Elsa's temperature, right? And then through various circumstances, she finds herself trapped behind locked doors, not like how Elsa was trapped at the beginning of the movie. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of the mystery of the incarnation, right? Christ takes on our sins and becomes like us in all things of sin. By coming the new Adam to undo the, the, the sin brought about by the first Adam. So here's a situation where like, you know, I, I can't save myself, so Christ takes on my sin. Pretty cool, huh? Anyways. So later on, what happens is that there's a situation where um, Elsa's about to, be, about to be killed, and then Anna steps in front, and she becomes a solid block of ice, and she effectively dies, and that obviously is, I don't know what's crucifixion, <laughs> right? Because it's a Disney movie, She's dead for like two seconds, and she comes back to life, right? And that's obviously the resurrection. But you notice how she comes back to life? So basically, she's, she's a solid block of ice, and then what happens is she becomes kind of warm in the middle, and then it kind of expands to the rest of her body. And that should remind you of the gospel, right? So after Jesus Christ, he dies, the centurion comes and pierces in her heart, and then as a result, I see him alone in this, right? So <laughs> blood and water flow from his side. Right? And it represents um, baptism in the Holy Eucharist. And some might say, like in general, it represents the sacraments of the church. Right? And so, yeah, so you think about all these different ways that were kind of rescued from the effects of original sin. Right? So baptism that wipes away the, the original sin and so restores us to you know, being a child of God. Right? So you think about um, confessions or like the second baptism, so we fall and restore again. Um, think about the Eucharist through the journey. All these different things, right? So that's what symbolizes there. Now, um, I remember talking to a spiritual director about this uh, way back when, not about Frozen, but just about this whole kind of dynamic, right? And he, he kind of shared with me this thing, which is, um, you won't find this in theology books, but I think there's a, a practical wisdom in this, right? So he's like, basically, like sin, let me break it down. Sin is a failure to love. That's what sin is, right? So different ways to define sin. Some, Someone says it's just an act of disobedience vis-a-vis the Lord, right? Or like, God wants you to do this and do something else. But if you realize, okay, I'm called to be a person of love. Sin at the end of the day is, I, there's an opportunity to love and a way of call to love, but I, I don't correspond to that invitation. I don't correspond. And, he says, and then here's the thing, right? He says, whenever we do that, in a certain sense, it's like sin to get sin, right? So like, when I do that, a certain poison enters my veins which further compromises my ability to love. If you examine your own heart, you realize that God actually is the case, right? And so he said, you know, you hold that thought and you think about the sacraments. The sacraments, in a certain sense, are meant to restore our ability to love through which we find new life, right? It's reminiscent of John Paul II, right? How do I find life? Not by clinging or possessing or controlling, but by giving myself away to the point of sacrifice for the sake of God and for the sake of other people. So when I habitually give of myself, make a self-gift out of a stance of love, that's how I find new life, even though it's kind of ironic in the way that it kind of plays out, or paradoxical, if you will. Right? And again, more to the point, whenever I commit sin, which again is a failure to love, my ability to love in the way that I'm called to love, or the way that I want to love, 
is compromised. And how I restore that is that I, I go receive the sacraments. And so to give you an easy example, like um, confession, that's a really kind of obvious example, right? So how many times are we in a situation where we're trapped in this pattern of sin, and the last thing we want to do is help someone, right? But the moment you go to confession, like, not only are your sins forgiven, but all of a sudden, like, I, I feel free, I feel a lightness of being, and I, I feel the inspiration to love people in the way that I'm called to love, right? And so that, that's kind of what's happening in the movie, right? So it's implied, it's not explicitly stated, right? But you notice that the moment that Anna comes back to life and there's a whole thing with the Sacred Heart and like, you know, the baptism and the Holy Eucharist and, and, and the sacraments, like what happens in the immediate aftermath of that? There's a change that happens in Elsa, right? So it's like, okay, um, you know that whole motto that, um, that the snowman says? I like warm hugs, you're killing me. <laughs> An act of true love will follow from snark. But that's the thing, right? So that's always been the motto throughout the film, but the only re- she's only able to grasp that once she received sacraments of race in the aftermath of her sister's death. Right? And so when she does that, then she, oh, she's like, oh, of course. And she casts that spell, and all of a sudden, the Arendelle is, is thought out. Okay. Any questions about that? That's kind of <laughs> Did you see Frozen 2? I did. <laughs> I did. It's not, it's not as tight as Frozen 1, but it's still pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, did, I did a thing on Frozen 2 too. Um, uh, Into the Unknown. It's a whole lot of the sermon. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Anyone else? Can we talk a little bit more about maybe like the So I'm not meant to be um, saved in isolation. Right? And how that applies here, like uh, St. Ignatius, obviously a great master when it comes to spiritual discernment and whatnot, um, he always says there's a great temptation to keep things um, private, you know? So like, I'm not going to share this with someone because I know they're going to say, or, like, or they're going to respond badly, or whatever, right? Whereas like, um, to think about like, um, like the writer of exorcism, like whenever you see exorcism movies, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think this is true, actually. An important prerequisite to casting out the demon is you need to figure out the name of the demon, right? And once you figure out the name of the demon, you can cast out that demon by naming it in the name of Christ to become type thing, right? And so it's a similar thing with us, right? So when we bring, when we name our demons and we kind of like bring them out into the open, like they're dispelled. And certainly uh, one obvious example is the sacrament confession or like, you know, the right of exorcism. <laughs> But also works on a very ordinary level as well, you know. So, um, you know, I, I can think about many situations even in my own life where um, there's things that you know I don't want to I don't want to name because I'm like I, I feel kind of ashamed of those places in my heart or my soul. But the moment I kind of like bring them out in the open in the presence of someone that um, that I trust and, and whose love that I have confidence, then it's amazing how that will dispel the thing. Like I remember, um, some of you heard this before, but I remember uh, attending a, a conference in Dallas, Texas. 
and it was a vocations conference, um, but also it was meant for seminary formators. So the idea was like not to simply get guys into the seminary, but what do you do once they're in the seminary to help them become happy and help the whole priest, right? And one of the things that the, um, uh, in one of the conferences that came out, this guy was saying like, look, you ever notice that Jesus, like, there are certain moments where he teaches you things, like, um, you know, sit down, lecture format, here's the Our Father, here are the Beatitudes, or whatever. But there's also a lot of stuff where, if you read between the lines, he's just, like, hanging out with these guys, you know? And the idea is that that's not a waste of time. And so, I think it was the age of inspired, so, like, love equals time plus attention. Love equals time plus attention. And, and this guy giving the talk, he was very explicit, he said, what you want to do, and I think we're speaking specifically to seminary formulas, but it applies to everyone too, right? What you want to do is create um, a recurring situation with the people in your midst where like, they feel like, you know, I can be weak and vulnerable before my friends, and he or she doesn't reject me, right? And that's a really powerful thing. Like, I remember even my internship pastor saying, like, you know, when you're by yourself, there could be a situation where, like, okay, I'm sad, I'm angry, I can name it. Maybe I name it correctly. But if I do it in isolation, it's not really a healing thing. But when I kind of go through the experience where like, I feel broken, and maybe I'm reliving that, my anger, my frustration, my sadness, in front of someone who doesn't believe me in that moment, that's a really, really powerful thing. Right? So um, yeah, that's, like, that's definitely one thing I found comes to mind, for sure. Because a lot of people, like, um, I don't know, a lot of people, are, they, feel, they feel alone in the struggle, but like, you, don't, you don't have to feel like that because you're, you're not supposed to be. Like, I remember in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, I forget which number it is, but it talks about how if you go God's way, God will give you everything you need to become the person you want to be. And it lists, like, 20 things, right? And they're very specific. And one of the things listed is, He will also give you friends. And the thing I want to suggest to you is that, like, you know, friends, in terms of people assisting you in the journey, they won't always be the same people. You know, I remember even in my first year of seminary, there was someone who was graduating, and I remember like, I'm thinking, oh no, he's gonna leave, and now oh, I have no more friends, <laughs> you know? And I remember him telling me this, it's like, no, like the Lord knows you need friends, and so different circumstances, different seasons of the spiritual journey, God will send people across your path, right? So it might not always be like your parish priest, or your mom, or this friend, or whatever, like, God will send people across your path so you don't have to be alone in the struggle, right? But if you're really going God's way, you'll, you'll recognize that, like, yeah, it's the person that God sent to me, so I and there's someone like if you, I know someone that I find when there's always this negativity coming out of them and you're trying to be a friend, you're trying to listen and so it's good that they're being vulnerable and open but then there's a point where you just like stop and change your life, do something about it like I, how do you what do you do, how do you handle that like I just find it hard there's a lot to be said about like setting up the stage for like, the next thing you know, so like a lot of times we're in this mode where like, gosh, you know, I wish I could give advice to advance the cause. And there's certain logic to that. I, I, my heart goes out to me and just is naming that issue. Right? But there's something to be said about like making the person feel like, you know, um, this person gave me time and I, I felt I felt hurt. And to kind of like, you know, it's big picture one game, right? So Gosh, like I remember there was a friend of mine who was like, you know, my nephew was going through all sorts of different issues. Can you, can you meet with him and just kind of help him with stuff because he seemed to be pretty good at this and that? This is before seminary, right? And I met with this guy and I, I hadn't met him for now, right? So I, I go talk to this guy 
And we just made small talk, like the whole night, and talked about things that he liked to talk about, whatever. And at the very end, when he felt comfortable, he was just like, oh, by the way, I struggle with this. You know, that was like seven hours later. But it just, it seems like maybe at the time, it's like, what's the point of this? But you're actually kind of building a relationship, so we'll see how it goes. Um, so, in the, kind of a flip of mom's question, where it's instead of what do you do when you're in a dark place, how do you help someone when they're in a dark place? Um, yeah, I, I was going to remind the former school director saying that, uh, this is what he framed it to me. He's like, you know, Eric, um, you meet someone and you think, okay, they're at minus 50, you want to bring them to plus 50, and then he goes, your job is never to bring them to plus 50. Your job is to recognize the Holy Spirit proceeds your action and cares about this person way more than you do. <laughs> And it's already working in this person's heart. So your job is to recognize and collaborate with the work of the Holy Spirit to help the person get from minus 50 to minus 49. There will always be the current temptation to be like, okay, because this is a serious issue, and maybe it's time to say, I really care about the outcome, I'm just going to overextend myself to make this thing go. But there's something very um, holy about, like, okay, I'm, I'm discerning what God is doing here. And my, my priority is not to, like, solve this issue for this person. My, my job is not to be the savior, but to kind of collaborate with God's priests and grace to move the situation along. Right? Use an analogy, it's like, uh, you know when you're in grade school and there's those open-ended questions? You know, not the multiple choice, but the open-ended, open-ended questions. If you know the answer, you're just like writing stuff, hoping something sticks, right? That's a bad spiritual space, right? Whereas like, you know, a lot of times, I'll tell you a lot of times, like I'm talking to people in the office, and like we're talking, and like you know, a lot of times you just you just met, right? And then the conversation is going, and then almost at the same time as the other person, like, okay, this is the area of, of the issue that we need to kind of apply our attention to, and like that's it, type thing. Move on to the next thing, and that situation that follows might involve you, it might not. But... My question is, can we be done? <laughs> 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 hey, you're probably dying. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. Okay. Sure. Okay, great. Thanks.